We are in Ephesians chapter 4. I'd like for you to turn there if you would. Ephesians chapter 4. I don't have a page number for you like I usually do. Somebody has a pew Bible page number for me and wants to call that out, I'll announce that. The title of the message this morning is What Was Jesus Up To Between Friday and Sunday? It may officially be my lamest Easter title, Easter sermon title in 14 years. I think I've preached every Easter for 14 years, and um, really, I know that's not a very strong title. In some ways, what I was attempting to do, what I was hoping that we could do in this morning, uh, in our time together this morning, is to deal with a what's up with that passage. Some of y'all remember the Saturday Night Live skit from years ago. I don't know if they still do it, the what's up with that skit. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Clinton Kate, we talked about it earlier this week. I think Kate was doing everything but daring me to sing it. I'm not going to sing it, but you know how it goes. Ooh-wee, what's up with that? What's up with that? This is one of those ooh-wee, what's up with that passages. There are others, you know, like this, like the floating axe head. You know, what is up with that? The bears mauling, heckling kids. What's up with that? There's some crazy what's up with that passages in our Bible. And this morning we're dealing with an ooey what's up with that passage in Ephesians chapter 4. For the sake of context, I'm going to read the couple of verses before this, beginning in verse 7. But we're going to be focusing our time this morning on verses 9 and 10. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things." Let me first deal with some observations. If you've been here before, you know this is a routine for us. If this is your first time here, we uh, uh, aim to unpack and expose God's Word and try and figure out how we can walk in it, how we can connect to it. So just to deal with the lay of the land from this passage, if we will, some observations. First one is Paul's writing to a church in Ephesus. 2,000-year-old letter, okay? There's nothing new under the sun. People 2,000 years ago had a little bit different context, a little bit culture, a little different culture and context, but there's nothing new under the sun. They were people just like us, and this church was made up of real people. This is not a figurative church we're speaking of. There was likely a, a lady there at church named Ethel who had blue hair. There's likely that really hairy guy named Melvin there in Ephesus. There's that Jewish couple that sings too loud and off-key, okay? They were there in Ephesus. There's that obnoxious guy named Bob that's always putting his foot in his mouth. This is a real church, people. This letter was written to real people. We're not talking about some sort of figurative thing. Paul's writing to a church. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesus, or the letter of Ephesus, he's writing in the first three chapters about Christ's work and what Christ has accomplished on the cross, what God did for us in Christ. He spends three chapters exposing one wonderful thing after another in what Christ did for us. And now in chapter 4, through the rest of the book, he's dealing with a fitting response to what Christ has done for the Ephesians. 
In chapter 4, specifically where we are, where we've landed the last few weeks that I've been preaching, is he's calling the church to walk in unity. Hard-won unity, mind you. And in particular, he is calling them to walk in unity by using the gifts given to them. If you were noticing the passage I began with here in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us. Contextually, that word grace, he's using that word to identify gifts. Gifts were given to each one of us. And he's calling them to walk in unity by using the gifts that were given to them through Christ's hard-won work. And to make this point, Paul refers to Psalm 68. Some of you got an email from me last night asking you to read Psalm 68. I began the morning welcoming you, reading Psalm 68. At that point, it would have been a thousand-year-old psalm. It's a psalm about the victory of God over his enemies. And what Paul does when he refers back to Psalm 68 in this letter to the church at Ephesus, in many ways what he's doing is saying, Christ is that victor. That psalm was written a thousand years ago, Ephesus, but Jesus is that victor that that psalm was about, and that victor passed out and distributed gifts to his people. He is the fulfillment of that psalm. He is the victor not over Israel's enemies, but over the human enemies of sin and death, and he gives the spoils of his victory, listen to this, as gifts to Ethel, Melvin, the couple that sings too loud and off-key, and yes, obnoxious Bob and the rest of us. He's given the spoils of his victory to the church. Now, in verses 9 and 10, if your Bible's like mine, you've got a little parentheses around verses 9 and 10. Paul here is emphasizing something very important. Our translators considered it parenthetical, which is why there's a little parentheses around it. Almost like it's an afterthought or a side thought. But in studying it more, I believe that Paul is emphasizing something very important when he's talking about gifts given to the church. He seems to be emphasizing the travels of Christ from the lowest depths to the highest heights. Look at how the passage unfolds. He ascended. It continues, what does it mean but that he also descended to the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens. In Paul's mind, he wants the church at Ephesus to understand that Christ's movement from the lowest depth to the highest height is what qualifies him to give gifts to the church. It's an important point. This is the main point of the passage. Going from the lowest, lowest parts to the highest is what qualifies him to give gifts to the church. So we go back to my title, this lame title of the sermon, What Was Jesus Up To Between Friday and Sunday? And let's deal with this question Where did Jesus go between Friday and Sunday? We're going to deal with this what's up with that passage. He descended into the lower regions, the earth. Some of you may come from a Christian background that you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed. Maybe it was part of a catechism for you. Maybe it's something that you had to learn years and years ago. So this this little creed may be familiar to you. 
I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Now, that's a very traditional reading of the Apostles' Creed. Many of the more contemporary versions of the Apostles' Creed say that differently, but the familiar or the Apostles' Creed is likely familiar to some of you. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth, dating this for you, sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. The ancient church apparently felt it very important to sort of quantify and capture the essence of faith and what it meant to understand what God has done for us in Christ. And in fact, they use an Apostle Creed from what we understand as an early baptism confession, a longer version of what was asked as each of these baptized were in the pool. Do you have any hope of being saved apart from Christ? No. Are you trusting Christ your Savior and Lord? Yes. This is a longer version of that that apparently the early church used. And apparently the early church believed that this phrase, he descended into hell, captured what Christ was up to between Friday and Sunday. I asked you to pay attention during the passage that I read at the beginning of the morning from 1 Peter chapter 3, that another, yet another, what's up with that passage? He preached to those in prison. That passage might connect to the concept of what the early church was thinking when they captured this, that he went into hell. We want to ask the question, is that what Paul is referring to here with the lower regions of the earth? Man, I have a tough time with that. Does anybody else? Does anybody else have a tough time with the notion that Jesus owes Satan anything? Let me just point this out, this thought, is that it's hard to reconcile with some of the things that we heard Christ say from the cross. He turned to a thief on the cross next to him and said, Today you will be with me, not in prison as I'm preaching to those in hell, but today you will be with me where? In paradise. And at the end of his travail, what did he say to his father? Into your hands I commit my spirit. He didn't say into hell or Satan's little scrawny hands I commit my spirit. This might help you process what our early church fathers were thinking. Apparently, ages ago, the concept of hell was very different from the concept of hell now. Ages ago, what they believed hell to be was the place of the dead. They used the term Hades or Sheol. But then around the 17th century, that term changed to mean the place of Gehenna or the place of eternal punishment. So the word, although it's spelt the same as our early church fathers used, the meaning changed. The parking spot for the word changed and it moved to be a place of eternal punishment under Satan, which our early church fathers would have never thought that. What we believe they were thinking when they used this term is something that our contemporary versions of the Apostles' Creed have reworded where it says that he descended to the dead or the place of the dead. Now that I maybe can live with. We'll talk about that for a moment. If he didn't go to hell, as we use the term, and he went to hell as maybe the ancient church used the term, to the place where the dead live, maybe a better question, and what Paul seems to be getting at is not where did Jesus go between Friday and Sunday. I have to confess to you right now, this is just one big old setup. 
I wanted to deal with I don't think where I, I wanted to deal with where I don't think he went. But I want to deal contextually with the point that Paul is making, because after all, I am preaching from Ephesians chapter 4. And I think for Paul, it's less about a little trivia lesson, parenthetical trivia question, lesson for the church in Ephesus, and more about wanting to demonstrate the depths to which our Savior went. It's less about geography and more about how low he had to condescend. The phrase as it reads in my Bible, the ESV, I think handles it nicely, although I don't agree with it completely. He descended into the lower regions, the earth. There are three possibilities of what's going on here, and I think they are actually combined. The first possibility is that Paul is simply referring to his condescension to earth. And that's the way our passage reads, that he descended to the lower regions, the earth, comma, the earth. That would connect to the thought of his descending to simply put on flesh was quite a descent. Okay, he might be speaking just simply of the incarnation. Or he may, as these more contemporary versions of the Apostles' Creed represent, he may actually be referring to his burial in the earth. That he was in fact buried. That he was in fact dead. When a Roman soldier stuck a spear in his side and blood and water came out of him, that that was a sign that he was in fact stone cold, not yet cold, but stone dead. That he was literally buried a dead man. That he wasn't in some sort of comatose state. That might be what Paul is talking about here as he descended into the earth. He wasn't snoozing and wasn't in a coma. But what seems to be connected here to the context of the book of Ephesians is so much more rich than either of those. Now, the, the incarnation is pretty rich. And the reality of his death is important to understand his resurrection. But contextually, what Paul seems to be taking them to is what it seems to refer to is the descent to the cross. The descent to the cross. Maybe Paul here is combining the concept of his incarnation and his very real literal death into one main event of the cross. It might help you to understand how Paul uses the term parts. Our reference here in ESV, I told you I wasn't quite a fan of the ESV and how it handles here. He descended into the lower regions, the earth. Other versions use the lower parts. The New American Standard says the lower parts of the earth. And that word there in the Greek actually means parts. And in, in the Gospels, the gospel writers use that very same word to refer to regions, talking geographical areas. Jesus moves from, moved from one part to another. Jesus moved from one region to another. But Paul uses the word very differently. He doesn't use it as some sort of geographical reference. I'll give you an example. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 9. Listen to how Paul uses the word part. It's the same word that he's using over here. In Ephesians chapter 4. For we know in part. And we prophesy in part. Not in region. We don't know in region and prophesy in region. We know in part our degree. And we prophesy in degree. 
But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in degree. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We want to understand how Paul uses that word. He doesn't use it speaking of a geographical region. He uses it to speak of degree. That changes the meaning of this passage. I hope you're like me. You want to make sense of this passage. And here we might rephrase it. He's descended into the lower parts. He descended into the lower degrees, which help us might make sense of what Paul is speaking of here. It seems to me that Paul is thinking of the depths as what Christ had to stoop to in the cross. Paul is certainly mindful of the incarnation and certainly mindful of the death of Christ. But Paul's emphasis is what took place on the cross. Listen to just a few sampling passages. In him we have redemption through his blood, i.e. shed on the cross. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Paul is thinking of the cross. There's another passage in chapter 2. Of Ephesians verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by blood. Blood shed on a cross. That's what Paul is thinking about. A cross. Look a few verses later in verse 16. That he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In chapter 5, verse 2, he says this, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul is mindful of this centerpiece event of the cross. It seems in Paul's mind, it's by his blood that we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. And it was on the battlefield of Golgotha that the victory was won, not in some dark, damp prison cell. And not in some dark tomb. For Paul, the emphasis seems to be that it was Golgotha. For it's on Golgotha where Jesus said the words, it is finished. It was Golgotha where he descended to the lower regions, the lower degrees, the lower parts. Man, I wonder if we become numb to the cross. We have a wind chime right outside our front door that has a bunch of little crosses on it. It was a gift to us when we came here. And it's fallen apart some. We've lost some crosses here and there. They've fallen off and we find them and we throw them away. Behind the front door as you come in our house on the wall there for ages now, we've had a cross. And Christy took it off this week because Christy just got the notion, I'm just going to paint. So she just raised up and painted and she took that cross off the wall. And she said, let's do something else with that. That's kind of tired. Not the cross tired, but that as a decoration is tired. For us, the cross has become decoration. For us, the cross has become something that we might wear on a bedazzled hat. Right? Man, I'm sorry. I hate to insult anybody that's got a bedazzled cross hat. But man, if I... 
I'm going to struggle with that a little bit in light of this. The cross, have we become numb to it? Is it just about jewelry and wall decorations and wind chimes and hats? Maybe we've lost the terrors of it. Maybe it's why we can't conceptualize that Paul is talking about here's the lowest of the low was the cross. In Philippians, he says, yes, even death on a cross. Like, are you kidding me? This is where the victory was won? This is our victor? Man, it makes me wonder if we become numb to the horrors of it. Imagine how strange it would be if someone started a line, a jewelry line of um, electric chairs, gold, silver, or maybe a bedazzled guillotine hat. Would you think that something was wrong with that person? Let me tell you something. The guillotine and the electric chair, as graphic and as terrible as those concepts are, both of those are a million times more humane than the cross. For they happen in private rooms or in dark settings, or they happen quick, like a guillotine. It might be public, but it happens. You're done. But the cross is hours long. The cross is graphic. It is the lowest of the low. He descended to the depths of humiliation in the horrors of the cross. Man, he didn't pay this terrible price in some dark private back room. He paid for it publicly on the highest hill in town. Stripped naked before friends and family and followers. Mocked, abused, and tortured, he descended to the very depths of the terrors of humanity so that he then could ascend having lived death like a boss. Hebrews 12, 2 has always been a treasure to me. It's an encouragement to the Hebrews church to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Do you think of the shame of it when you wear it around your neck? Keep wearing it, but connect it to his shame. Keep wearing it. Tell the world that you're trusting in him. But don't for a minute let the cross become something that's just a piece of jewelry for you. I believe it is the lowest of the low. I believe that Paul wants the lady named Ethel and Melvin the hairy guy and the couple who sings too loud and off key and obnoxious Bob and the rest of the Ephesian church, as God wants us to know, that Christ's authority as the victor comes from his movement, from the lowest of human experience. It's not about geography. From the lowest of human experience to the highest imaginable. He who descended also ascended far above the heavens to the highest of heights and is now seated and reigning and ruling at the Father's right hand. 
And in this movement from the lowest depths to the highest heights, he, as the passage tells us in Ephesians 4, filled all things. This means that nothing in creation was left untouched. He ran the gamut in his work. The word gamut used to be a a musical word. It was a word that, uh, this thing on? Yeah. The word gamut, whoa. Clint, you set me up, buddy. That's the only song I know, Nine Years of Lessons, and it's only that few notes. Scott Joplin, the entertainer, is amazing. The word gamut used to be a musical word. You're probably familiar with the word now. It's connected to, like, maybe somebody runs the gamut of emotions in a loss or in some sort of crisis. I've gone from happiness to sadness in every shade of every emotion in between. The word gamut, though, in the 16th century was a reference to the lowest note on the musical scale. That's what it meant, gamut. But in the centuries since then, it's come to mean every note on the scale, from the highest to the lowest, or the lowest to the highest. And I think that word is a beautiful parking space for what the point that Paul is making here, that Jesus ran the gamut. You might think for a moment that he was born at middle C. That's middle C. But he wasn't born just some regular old Joe in some regular old place. He was born as a pauper. He was born into a poor home. Born in a stable. Laid in a manger. Man, he's run the gamut. He experienced hunger, fatigue, frustration of every kind. He wept for his friend Lazarus. He was betrayed by one of his followers. He was arrested. He was mocked, he was beaten, paraded from trial to trial on the cross, he thirsted. And on the cross, he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabastani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He ran the gamut. You know what's awesome though is Easter morning. Easter morning he left a very real tomb, very much vacant, and stepped out on cold, wet grass, I would imagine. And then he spent 40 days teaching, explaining, assuring doubting brothers populating hordes of witnesses, 
providing witnesses to account for the fact that he is risen. And 40 days after he left that tomb vacant, he had a seat at the Father's right hand. That's hard to appreciate. It's so high. But what I want you to see is he ran the gamut. He ran the gamut. Every note, he's experienced it. I only have two points this morning. And the first point is connected to this gamut that he ran for us. You can enjoy this morning, on this Easter morning, that we truly have an awesome Savior. An awesome Savior. John chapter 3 verse 13 says, No one has ascended except he who no one has ascended to the earth except he who's descended from heaven, the Son of Man. No one. The emphasis is on no one. No one else has run, run the gamut. No one. Only Christ. And yet he's not aloof in his identity as the only one who could do this. But instead he's sympathetic. He's a sympathetic high priest. And this is more of a devotional thought. But if you're experiencing some version of this in life... If your life sounds like a dissonant chord, the cool thing is you have a Savior that's run the gamut that understands where you are without having sinned himself. Man, we have a great, great Savior. God, that thing nearly launched me. That is ridiculous. I'll never sit in that again, ever. I'm sweating, it nearly scared me so bad. We have an amazing Savior, and that's a good reason to play, place your faith, faith in Him. No one else has run the gamut. That's a great reason to, by faith, trust in Him and unite to Him in faith. The second point takes about 10 seconds, but I think it's just so timely. Don't separate the work of the cross from the life of the church. If you were paying attention at the beginning of the sermon where I'm just providing some observations, some context... The point of this passage about a Christ that ran the gamut from the worst, the lowest of the human experience to the exaltation at the Father's right hand. Okay? It's embedded within a passage about the life of the church and the unity that the church should experience and enjoy as we use our gifts, our hard-won gifts that were won through his victory. So the notion of enjoying Christ and his victorious work apart from being involved in the life of the church is nonsensical. This may be my one opportunity with some of you who are friends or family who are here just because you had a family member or a friend being baptized, or maybe this is your one shot at church on this Easter morning. Let me appeal to you with the reality that the gamut that Christ ran, he ran so that he'd have authority to give gifts to the church. Man, if you're not walking with a local body, you're missing out. And here, let me set you at ease. It doesn't have to be here. <laughs> this, all, this isn't a recruitment plan, recruitment pitch. Let me appeal to you. If this is your one and only visit here, and you're like, okay, this isn't the church for me. That was a little weird. I don't like weird. And you want more? That's okay. 
But man, find a church and walk in your gifting and enjoy the gifting of the other people, those around you, the Ethels and the Melvins around you. Enjoy hearing that couple sing loud and off-key. Walk with the people of God. It's, he ran the gamut so you can do that. Man, don't go it alone. I think it's a divine appointment that you're here today. Some of you who are here and walking, you'll be affirmed in this. Some of you who might be on the bubble for one reason or another, I'm not sure that I'm going to continue on in church. Press on. Don't miss out on what was so hard won. And those of you that aren't any of those things and are just here physically, let me appeal to you. Please connect to a body of people with real Ethels and Melvins and smelly guys named Melvin. I already talked about him. With smelly, hairy guys. Man, that's where the goods are. Somebody said amen. That's where the goods are. Man. Let me close in prayer and then we'll have our supper. God, we are so thankful that Christ ran the gamut. God, we are so thankful that he played every note. We are so thankful that he has authority to give gifts to the church. And Lord, we are so thankful that we are walking in this morning in those gifts. For the last couple of hours, we've enjoyed those gifts. God, I pray for every person here that we will continue to walk in what was so hard won. God, we're thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.